Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here at, um, at City Light, and um, it's great you can be with us here this afternoon as we kick off our series in the Habits of Grace. And, uh, and today, the, what I'm going to be speaking through is a bit of an introduction into this series, why it is that we're doing it and the like, and then focusing on one particular habit, the biblical habit of stewardship, that is spending our money as though it's God's and not our own, and why it is that this is logical in light of what Jesus teaches. But uh, to recap where we were at from last week, if you're with us for Vision Sunday, we went through uh, this passage in Matthew 28, uh, Matthew, uh, yeah, 28, 18 to 20, which says this, Jesus is speaking, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." We don't get a choice in setting the mission of the church. It's Jesus' church, and he set the mission 2,000 years ago right here in this text. He laid out that our mission is to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. That's how we've summarized it. We're not just making more. We're not here to just uh, have people put a hand up saying, yep, I got saved, and then you're on your own, to have a church that's a mile wide and yet just an inch deep. And yet at the same time, we're not here just to strengthen believers, but to see people who didn't know Jesus actually find relationship with him for the first time. The church is not meant to be just a safe house or a bunker for Christians to hang out and to sing Kumbaya until Jesus comes back uh, to protect us from the world outside. But uh, as we make more and stronger disciples of Jesus as a church, we have one unique challenge ahead of us in the immediate future, and that is we're about to lose 20 of our 150 members for the, the best reason possible. They're going to start a new gospel work over in Burwood at the Burwood campus uh, starting uh, in April, but they're only with us for three more weeks here in this building. And so we're going to feel that. That's going to be significant. And so the challenge that we have before us is that we're called to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus, and we're going to do that with less people than we had last year, 20 less. That's the most significant hit we've ever had in in our life as a church. But I think there's one more challenge with that. That as we go to make more and stronger disciples, we're meant to do it in a way that reflects the gospel, with gospel joy. Uh, One British uh, preacher who's passed away now said this, said, Believing as I do that the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church, the subject dealt with in these sermons that he was giving, is to me of the greatest possible importance. Now catch this. It says, Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. We cannot go out into the world proclaiming that Jesus Christ is life without actually experiencing and knowing that joy. To head out as miserable Christians is in one way just to say, hey, look, we've got a brand new way of being miserable in this city. It's different to what you've tried before, so maybe come and have a go at it. But no, that's not, that's not right. We are called uh, to head out with the joy of the gospel to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus, and yet with less people than before. So how is it that as a church that we're going to do this? Well, a goal without a plan is just a wish, and so here's our plan over this series. We're going to be looking at five habits. Five habits. And we're going to be calling you to give and serve, but over this series, we want you to be developing, working on living God-centered, unhurried, spiritually flourishing lives. 
we think of five biblical habits that will help us to do that are these. Stewardship, that is, as I mentioned before, the habit of spending money as though it belongs to God and not us. Church community, the habit of meeting regularly with Jesus' church family. Gospel fluency, the habit of, of speaking Jesus into everyday conversation. Rest, the habit of resting biblically and regularly. And daily Bible reading and prayer. Now, we won't cover that during this series. We spent five weeks on it at the end of last year and four weeks at the beginning of this year on prayer. So we're going to cover the other four during this time. But our hope is that as we do this, we would continue to flourish as a church in knowing Jesus more deeply and making more and stronger disciples of him. And so I'm going to pray that as we kick off on stewardship today for the next couple of weeks, that God would be doing exactly that work. Pray with me. Father God, we praise you that you are a good and everlasting God. We praise you that you didn't leave us in our sins, give us as our sins deserve, but you sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice that our sin and the penalty for our sin would be laid upon him and that we might be made righteous through him. And Father, we thank you that our standing before you is wholly upon what Jesus has done and nothing on ourselves. And so we pray that as we look to grow as followers of Jesus, that we wouldn't look to add to salvation, but simply to put into our lives habits that accord with the gospel truth that we already know, with the freedom that Christ has won for us. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Now to kick off with, as I mentioned before, I want to give you a little bit of background as to why it is that we're going to be focusing on these habits of grace over this uh, series leading up to Easter. And the passage that to kick it off is from Matthew 11, when Jesus is talking to a crowd about what it's like to follow him and to be a disciple of him. Look at what it says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says to this group of people, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, who are worn out, who are burnt out. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And not just a day off, he says, I will give you rest for your soul. So he's saying that finding life with him, giving your life over to him, having him as your Lord, is like finding rest for your soul, like coming home. Now the strange thing about it is that he uses a yoke to illustrate this. Why would Jesus use a work tool to demonstrate the idea of, of finding of life with him being like rest? One preacher has mentioned, if Jesus wanted to explain a metaphor for, for life being with him being like rest, why wouldn't he have said, you know, I've come to bring you a mattress rather than a yoke? Why, why the yoke? If you, if you haven't yoked up any oxen lately, you may not be familiar with what a yoke is, but a yoke particularly in Jesus' day, was used to, to strap two animals to each other so that they would work more efficiently. And usually it would be oxen and they'd be pulling something along and it was done to usually pull a plow or something like that to soften up soil. So it's a work tool. Now why is it that this is the metaphor that he's giving? Well see, rest from sin and death and difficulty and all of that is coming. When Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead and to establish the new heavens and the new earth for all time, we'll find that kind of rest. 
But until that time, there is still work to do and hardship to be endured. And so what he offers is a yoke. He says, come alongside me. My yoke is easy. I will show you how to live life here and now, despite all the sin and difficulty and hardship that there is, and show you what life is like. And really, it is the case that he's the one who is born the brunt of most of the work. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. It will be easy. I mean, think about life with him. It is Jesus who has done all the work. It was him who came to die for our sin and take the penalty fully. It was him who broke the curse of death so that we might have new life in him. It was him who sent his spirit into our hearts so we might have faith in him and be made new. It's him who intercedes for us. He has done all the work. And yet he is saying discipleship to him, following him, will mean him bringing us alongside himself that he might show us how to live. And he says, when you do this, he says, when you take my yoke upon you, he says, you will find rest for your soul in the midst of all the turmoil of life. And so here's a question then. Why is it, unless I'm reading it wrong, why is it that if you ask many followers of Jesus, many Christians of Jesus, what their life is like, one of the first two words out of their mouth is usually either busy or tired or some kind of combination of the both. If Jesus says discipleship to him is taking his yoke upon us of finding rest for our souls, why is it that most Christians are describing life as mainly tiring and busy? There are only two options. Either Jesus overshot the mark a little bit with his promises here and he was exaggerating a little bit, or something else is going on. Come with me to Galatians 5, sentence 1. In Galatians 5, Paul is writing to the Galatian church and he says this to them. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He was writing to a church that had come to know the freedom that comes with the gospel. And yet some other people had come in and started adding things in and saying, actually, yeah, the gospel is great, but you've also got to do this, this and this in order to be right with God. And they started living as though that were true. And so it's possible to be someone who follows Jesus, who's been set completely free, and yet to live out of sync with that reality. To be completely free in Jesus, and yet submitting again to a yoke of slavery. It reminds me of this, that the Christian life really uh, is a little bit like this story. I remember seeing a documentary about a, a child who had been raised as an animal. So he'd been raised as a dog among other dogs and fed like a dog and kept in a cage until he was finally released um, from the, the cruelty of the people who'd been minding him. And there was a team of psychologists that had to work together to get this kid healthy again or do the best that they could. And one psychologist talked about the first time that he met this child, the child came up to him and curled up in his lap like a dog. And that he talked about how difficult it was to teach this kid how to live as a dignified human being, to use language and speech because for so long he'd been treated so poorly and it took years to undo. I think in many ways we too can be set free in the gospel and it takes years and years for God to show us what it means to live out that freedom fully and completely. Oftentimes we go back to old ways or old habits. And I would say that for many Christians, much of their lives, our lives, are being dictated by secular life in this city, maybe even more than the gospel. 
that the reason that we describe life as being busy and tired and all these things is not because that's what life with discipleship with Jesus is like. That's life in this city. Let me recover some of the ground from last week. If you don't know, Sydney is very much a secular city. And by secular, I mean that the, the abiding belief is that there is no God above and there is no afterlife to come. That anything that is significant or meaningful is to happen in the here and now. And with that, there are three articles of faith that particularly come with Western secularism. Individualism, the belief that I'm a self-ruling being. I am in charge of my life. I make my decisions. It's my life. Two, humanism, that my potential is unlimited and I need to fulfill it. And three, hedonism, I need to feel good all the time. These are the three kind of articles of faith that go with with a secular city. And these three beliefs are kind of given wings by the technology that we have at our fingertips. Think about the belief of individualism, the belief that I am in charge of my life. I'm a self-ruling being. At your fingertips, you have all kinds of things that make that plausible. We have transport that can take us pretty much anywhere in the world in less than 24 hours, mostly. We can choose the temperature that we want it to be in the room to the degree. We choose what music we want. We choose what food and clothes we want. And we can have them delivered to our door straight away. We watch whatever we want, when we want. If you want something, you can have it. If there's something you don't like about yourself, you can have it surgically altered. If you have a headache, you can take a pill and it goes away. All of this builds in us the belief that I'm a self-ruling being and I'm completely in charge of my life. But what about humanism, the belief that my potential is near, uh, near limitless? I have a device in my pocket that means that I can be in two places at once. And if you've got the new FaceTime app, you can have like 16 or something like whatever else it is that, if you can keep up with all of that. Not only that, but social media convinces me that I can maintain an infinitely expanding group of friends. I have a car that means that I can go to two social events in one night rather than cancel one. I can drop off my kids at three different sporting events in different locations. I can do it all. I have a laptop, meaning that I can get work done at any time or any given moment. All of this builds in us the belief that my potential is unlimited and I can keep expanding my possibilities. But what about hedonism? The belief that I, can, I need to feel good all the time. Well, in the city, you can. Whatever you want, you can have it and you can have it now. If you've got an unpleasant thought or feeling, there's a distraction for that. If you want some good food or good coffee or good alcohol, we have the best in the world at your fingertips available to you. We have more pleasures and comforts than many of the kings and queens and rulers of empires had in the life past, and that's ordinary life in the inner city. I never have to feel bored. I never have to feel anxious. And this builds in me the belief that I need to feel good all the time. And once you believe these three things, the logical thing is that I live basically a secular life. Everything that matters happens here and now. And much of this happens through habits. But these beliefs are also what is keeping our city busy and distracted and tired and strung out. Let me explain it to you this way. I think I shared a short story with you last week that I wrote in the first person to explain what it's like, what it's like living in the city. I have a very demanding job because I can't say no to promotions because I'm afraid I won't fulfill my true potential. But I also need to feel good all the time, and that's very expensive. 
It makes me very stressed and tired. So when I drive home, I'm angry because I'm a self-ruling being and people on the roads aren't obeying me and they're idiots driving their cars. I slump down on the couch at home and I'm dog-tired and I don't feel like cooking, so I ought to take out to my door because I need to feel good all the time. I'm annoyed because the Uber driver's on a bicycle and it's going to take 27 minutes, so I watch TV because I need to feel good all the time. I choose a popular movie like A Star is Born or Incredibles 2, movies about how we're self-ruling beings who need to fulfill our potential no matter what, uh, and I feel better about myself. After a night of wasting time and eating bad food, I go to bed feeling bad because I should have done some work for my demanding job, so I sit up in bed working. Then I finish and I feel tired but awake, so I scroll through on social media where I see that all my friends are living perfect lives, fulfilling their potential perfectly, and living harmonious and adventurous lives while I'm sitting here tired and strung out. All the while, I never consider the questions of death or meaning or God because this is life under the yoke of secularism. This is how it is that in a city with more time-saving devices than ever, everyone feels like I'm running out of time. I don't have enough time. This is how we can live in a city that's safer than it's ever been, but we feel more anxious than ever. How we can live in a city that's richer and has more abundance than ever before, and then we feel discontent. How we can live in a city that's more populated than ever, and yet struggle with loneliness. This is the cruel yoke of Western secularism. And sadly think most Christians are adopting the habits and routines of the city uncritically and wondering why life with Jesus doesn't feel like an easy yoke. Think about the habits and routines of your life. How many of them are simply borrowed from the culture around and how many did you put into your life based on what you believe is true about the world and life and meaning because of the gospel and gospel convictions? Whose yoke are you living under week after week? See, I think it's time for us to start living life on purpose. And over this series, we're going to be digging into five habits in particular. And habits really are a matter of self-control. And self-control, I think, both in our culture and in our church, have, have got a bit of a bad name over time. That we've, We live in a culture that's moved... I mean, you don't, you don't see many packed-out seminars on self-control and all that kind of thing. But it's the same in, in churches, that the idea of self-control sounds almost anti-grace or anti-gospel. But that's not the case. In Titus 2, 11 to 12, look at what we read. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Saying, once you understand the grace of the gospel, it says it actually leads you, it says here, to say no to ungodliness and live self-controlled lives. That grace and self-control actually go together. More than that, it's actually spirit-given. It's not just dependent on us. It's not just that we just now, like God saved us, but now we've got to carry on the work. Look what it says in Galatians 5. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generous, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The idea of forming habits that accord with your beliefs is a matter of self-control, and it goes with the grace of the gospel. And so, as we think about these things going forward, our desire is that over these next 10 weeks, that you'd see a real change in your life. And the first one that we want to dig into over this week and the next two is the habit of stewardship. The habit of spending money as though it's God's and not ours. And Jesus' story in Luke 12 
is most instructive on this habit. Turn with me to Luke 12, sentences 13 to 14, to see what kicks off the story that Jesus tells. We're told here that someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? So they come up to Jesus and they approach him with the familiar term, teacher. Because when it comes to, you know, middling disputes, it was commonplace to ask a teacher what their opinion was of it. And so this guy has come up to Jesus knowing that he has some authority and he's saying to him, right, Jesus, there's this inheritance that's been passed down. My brother's obviously not sharing it fairly. You know, what do you think about that? And I love Jesus' response here. He just says, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? It reminds me of like when I was working at aftercare, and this is why I couldn't go into primary teaching. I had to go into high school instead. Kids, primary kids would come up to you with problems where it was unclear what your response was supposed to be. Remember one kid came up one time and said to me, she was like, she had her hula hoops, and she said, um, I, was, I was playing with hula hoops, and um, Allison started copying me, and that was it. I remember just thinking, I have no opinion on this issue. I, I don't know what I'm supposed Is that wrong? Like, is that against the school rules? Like, should she be busted? I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And it sounds almost like in this section that this is how Jesus is responding. This guy's like, Jesus, like, my brother won't share the toys with me. He's like, well, what's that got to do with me? But then he does dive into the situation. And look at the first thing that he says. And I'm pretty sure this guy was not expecting it. In Luke 12, 15, it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the first thing he says to this guy who's come up to him, saying that his brother needs to divide the inheritance with him, is, hey, watch out, be on guard against covetousness, against greed. Now, why is it that he says be on guard against it? You know, Jesus doesn't say that about any of the other sins. He never says, guys, watch out, be on guard against murder. As if you could somehow find yourself, like you you just thought you were exercising, but it turns out you're murdering someone. It never happens. It's not something you have to be on guard with. Jesus never says, guys, watch out, be on guard against stealing. As if you just find yourself in a balaclava in someone else's house being like, these aren't my things, like what's going on here? It's not going to happen. But greed is different to other sins. You can be fully and completely captive to it, and have no idea that you are. And he starts this by saying, watch out for covetousness. Watch out for greed. And then he goes on to tell them this story to make the point even clearer. It says, and he told them this parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The man works hard. His land produces plentifully. So he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I'll build some more storehouses. I'll set myself up for life. It's a good plan. And Jesus says, this is foolishness. 
And why? Because he says he was not rich toward God. He's saying the right response to that amount of abundance should have been to think, how is it that God who rules everything would have me spend or prioritize my spending, and yet he doesn't? The way he thinks of his possessions is entirely in secular terms. What can I enjoy in this life right here and now? How can I live as comfortably as I possibly can with the abundance that I have in front of me? And Jesus says that is foolishness. But the crazy thing is, this parable and the way this man spends the money is probably a fair and reasonable and apt illustration of the main ways we are encouraged to spend money right now in this city. Of the 2,000 plus advertisements that you see every single day, most of them will be encouraging you to spend money on the five senses, on what you can see, taste, touch, hear, smell, on things that are in the here and now. That is how we're being urged to spend money. And we're spending money like crazy and still not being satisfied. But in a city with so much abundance, it is still not providing meaning. And this should be a warning for us that this is not how money was meant to be used. This is not how abundance was meant to be used. Everything that we enjoy is subject to the law of diminishing returns. That is the one thing I learned in economics in all the years I did it in high school. If you're not familiar with the term, I think I've got this right, on that axis, what's that? The X? Okay, great. On that axis, you've got production, so the number of items, and on the other, you've got consumption. And the, the idea is that as you produce more, more people buy it, but eventually you hit like a peak point where you actually start to lose profit and interest wanes and, and it goes down the other side. You kind of hit this principle of the law of diminishing returns. But it also applies to pleasure. Let me explain to you through the illustration of a kid's party. Asha went to a party of uh, like one of the, the women in our group. Her son was turning four. And Asha went to the party. He's our eldest. And uh, he saw the abundance of, just, of food that was there. There was pizza, there was lollies, there was all this stuff. And so we said to him, knowing how G'd up kids get at kids' parties, we're like, just take it. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Just let's not go too hard and, and, like, and just get one thing at a time and then come back and get something else. Anyway, I, I couldn't keep track of him the whole time because I was watching Harper, but I could just see he was, just, like, he was back there constantly, right? And if you were to map his enjoyment of the day... It was certainly increasing exponentially at the start, but then he hit a point where he started to look just a little bit green. And it was sort of about 20 minutes to go in the party, and we got in the car, and when we finally got in there, he said, Dad, I think I'm going to throw up. And he absolutely did. (laughs) And it became this parable in our family that he has remembered just profoundly about why it is that you don't go so hard at a party, the lollies and all that sort of gear. But even though it's an example in the case of a six-year-old, I mean, it's something that we adults need to learn from, isn't it? We have so much stuff, and yet all of it's subject to the law of diminishing returns. There's nothing we have that doesn't get old or that we don't throw out or that we just get bored of. Ravi Zacharias, one preacher put it this way. He said, I am absolutely convinced that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves emptied of meaning while our pantries are still full. It should be a clue to us that this is the, not the way that God designed these abundances to be enjoyed. But Jesus points out that these are just a, this is just a symptom, really, of the main problem. The main issue is that we can be so caught up in the here and now, 
in spending on our pleasures that we forget to consider the ultimate reality of death and a God to be reckoned with. And he says to this man, you fool, this night your life will be taken from you. Then whose will be any of this stuff? And he says this happened because he was he stored up treasure for himself and was not rich toward God. He's saying this was a foolish way to think about money. In the Bible, we are taught to understand ourselves as stewards. Again, that's not a term that you hear floating around very often, is it? But a steward is someone who is using someone else's stuff on their behalf. If you borrow someone's car, you drive it differently to when it's your own. You're using it on behalf of someone else. And we are told that, we are, that our money and our stuff is not our own. We are using it on behalf of God, according to His kingdom priorities. We are stewards and not owners. But then your question might be, okay, well, stewardship is kind of more of a mentality. In what, in what way is it a habit? Well, here's the thing. Think of the dozens of transactions that you make every day. And there are dozens of them. And some of them are happening, they might even be happening right now. It's coming off your card, some legally. There might be one that's happening from like, you know, Peru or something like that. You may want to check on that. But all the ones that you decided to do, think of the dozens of transactions that you've made. What do they reveal about what you believe about life and meaning and priorities? Because they will reveal something. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't separate it. Your money will reveal what you believe about God and your habits of spending will reveal that you believe you're either a steward or an owner. That there are priorities that go beyond this life or that everything is to be enjoyed right here and now and we're to live as comfortably as possible. I was thinking about this even for my own life and particularly over the last few months and I've noticed something and you might, you may be a similar sort of makeup or whatever but I noticed that in terms of my spending that if I feel stressed or kind of funny I tend to I tend to chuck a few add-ons to items like when I go to the petrol station I might just chuck in a little cheeky chocky or something like that right if I'm just if I'm feeling just a bit off I kind of want to buzz to feel better again and I also noticed that over the last little while I found myself being more envious of other people's stuff than I have before I started to wonder whether these two go together. The, the fact that I'm, in dozens of small little ways, reinforcing the belief that I need to feel good all the time, then makes me feel jealous when other people can do that and I can't. Now, I don't actually believe that. I believe I have everything I need in Jesus. And yet I have this spending habit that really isn't matching up with what I say I believe about life. And so in an effort to kind of pull back on that, I've been trying to during the week just have no, no plus ones, no sort of extra things. It's been interesting to see my, my instinctive response to when I'm feeling stressed or worried about things is to go for it, to get an extra coffee, to get a this or that. But it's funny, what do your spending habits reveal about what you believe about life? Have you ever done an audit of them? Because Jesus says, be on your guard against covetousness. It will sneak up on you. And so in applying this and what Jesus is saying for this first week, there's just a couple of things to think on. The first one is this, a budget. If you have a budget, when was the last time you looked over it and opened up scriptures and just thought, is, is how I'm spending and what I see in scripture matching up? If you don't have a budget, 
it is like driving without a speedo. You are hemorrhaging cash all over the place, and there is no way to know where it's going. It might require sitting down and, and even just over the last week thinking, where is it that everything goes? And does this really match up with what Jesus says about my life and my priorities and who he is and all that matters? And that would be the first one. Think through a budget. The second one is this. We are called to be rich toward God. That our, that our money is not our own. It belongs to God and is to be administered on his behalf according to his kingdom purposes. Now we are doing something called the Onward Fund over the next three weeks. And there are a few things going forward as a church that are above and beyond our budget that we think would be helpful in going forward in making more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And we would love for you to pray and think about those things over the next two weeks as we open Scripture and look at what it teaches about money and finances and stewardship and all these things. And to pray through whether or not God is putting on your heart something that you would want to give towards for His kingdom purposes. And that will be taken up on the last week of this series, the week when our Burwood team, when we farewell our Burwood team as they head off. And so it would be great for you to be thinking about that as you consider the habit of stewardship. But the last one is this. That following Jesus is meant to be about freedom. And if you're reading through the daily readings in, in January with us as we move through the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13 it says, keep yourself free from the love of money. Covetousness is a trap and a miserable trap. It does not accord with life with Jesus. Jesus set us free completely. And we're to be free of the love of money. So it would be your prayer with me that over this series, God might be setting us free from covetousness and greed and the love of money, that we might live out the life that he, ha- that he has for us and spend according to his gospel priorities. Let's pray that he would do this work in our hearts over the next few weeks. God, we know that everything belongs to you, that you rule the heavens and the earth, that everything comes from your hand. We know that you have sovereignly appointed a day when you will establish your kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth forever. And we praise you. You are working out your salvation through your church. Father, we pray as we think through how it is that we are to live in light of the gospel and the freedom of the gospel, that we might live lives according with the gospel truth. That we might live free from the love of money and free to your grace and to discipleship to Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would do this not in our own strength, but trusting in you and the work of your Holy Spirit, all that you might be glorified in your church. Amen. We're going to take a moment to reflect on these things, and then after that,